This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice Season 7, Episode 8. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Dr. Gillian Kayes. And we're back on professional development, so we're just going to jump straight in. Okay, well, the opposite of variable practice is when you're in a room and you do your song and you sing it through 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 and and that's your practice. The opposite of that is variable practice, which is you take a small phrase and you work that. You then change song Mm -hmm. and you work a small phrase in that song and then you could go to a third song and you do that and then you come back to the original song. Or you take an aspect of what you're doing, like I'm going to elongate all the M's in this song Mm -hmm. and you do... A version of that and then you change song and you do the same thing. Uh, Also, variable practice involves doing it in different rooms. Mm, Change your environment. Change the environment. I mean, that can be as simple as stay in the same room but face a different wall. Mm-hmm. It can be as straightforward as that. Uh, do the same thing, close your eyes. Do the same thing, put headphones on. I was just going to say, put headphones on. Yeah, yeah, anything that will change what you do. What is so fascinating is that when you do, and I've forgotten what the opposite of variable practice is, but when you do the opposite version where you just repeat, mm. what will happen is that you are in, your brain is embedding that this is how it sounds and this is how it feels in this room, in this environment, in this acoustic, in this temperature. And the moment you change any of those, Mm. all the learning that you did in that room, out the window. And the reason that variable, uh, variable practice, if you like, is so useful is that you automatically build in that you can do that thing in different environments. You know, Jeremy, I think this is why I'm sure any singing teacher listening will uh, have heard this phrase. But it was all right when I did it at home. Yes. It was all right when they did it at home because now with you, they're in a different environment. So the best thing they can do is uh, go and sing it in different rooms in the house, sing it at different times of day. Um, sing it when they haven't warmed up. Yep. See what happens. Um, I think in uh, speech and language therapy, it's called generalising the skill. Absolutely. And it, it made me think, only yesterday, it made me think about this. And it made me think about people who run a singing studio. So you have 20, 30, 40, 50 students. And if you are doing it always in the same arena, always in the same studio, they all come in the same order, they come in at the same time of day, all of that, which is fairly standard for a, for a singing studio, then what you're doing is that you're embedding what they can do in that room. And it made me think of the use of organising either little concerts where they're in a different environment with an audience, or even hiring a different room and getting people together and doing a concert or, or a, a sing-through, if you like, just in front of their peers, because again, you are doing something that takes them away from their, quotes, safe space with you. Really interesting idea that you put them in different environments. Mm. Uh, I've done this for Mm. years as a pianist. I've done this for years. Uh, As straightforward as sometimes I play the grand piano and sometimes I play the digital keyboard and I will move from one to the other. Uh, I will often do... 
I'll play through something just to get an overview of where I am and then break stuff down. I'll start at the end and go backwards. I'll do a, pro um, a program in a different order. So we'll top and tail backwards. Uh, I'll play the beginning, the end and the beginning, and then the end of the beginning of the previous one and the end of the beginning of the previous one. So you're constantly moving, shifting the goals around. And then um, sometimes I'll hire a studio with a completely different piano and a completely different acoustic to do the same thing. Mm, mm. So it was really interesting. So much of what Kitty was saying, uh, I thought, that's really good. You know, I do that already. I've... I do this. And it was interesting because I didn't, you know, it's like you don't read about this stuff. I've done it for years because... Mm. I've had to be so efficient because I'm a collaborative pianist and I'm working with multiple people mm. and I'm doing multiple programs. And, and sometimes the piano is crap and sometimes oh, it's a keyboard, yes. sometimes the pedals don't work. Yes, sometimes the keys stick while you're playing. I mean, I can count on the fingers of one hand how many times I've had a piano that has been stunning um, and that's not been in a few years. So, yeah, it's you just that's I'm so used to building programs really, really fast, learning stuff really fast that I have to get it up to a performance pitch very, very quickly mm. that I will. I sort of learned to bring in all of these different rehearsal types in order to make it embed really quickly. I suppose we should talk a little bit about my panel session. Yes. Um, anybody who's been following our podcasts will know that um I am very passionate about helping singers when they hit a voice problem. And so uh, my panel session was called My Singer Has a Voice Problem, Dilemmas of the Singing Studio. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was to get together a multidisciplinary team of people. So including for nutritions and SLP, um, there were two SLPs there, one of whom was a phoniatrician, um, and uh, two singing teachers, myself and Jale Papilla of the... Um, it's the Voice Centre in Hamburg. Yeah, Voice Centre in Hamburg. We'll put the correct links it's in. Med the, medical in, Voice Centre. Medical Voice Centre. So Hamburg. sorry, Medical Voice Centre. Um, it's because you changed your name a couple of years ago. <laughs> And um, Professor Dr. Bernard Richter of the Freiburg Institute of Musical Performance Research, who I think is one of the world's leading experts on dynamic MRI. Yes. So if you've ever been online and you've seen little snippets from um, a video called Die Stimme. Yeah, which in then, fact we have here. Yeah, that was produced by the Freiburg Institute. Yes. So why did I want a multidisciplinary team? Well, the reason's very simple, because if your client does hit a voice problem, either a muscle tension dysphonia uh, or they have a vocal injury such as a hemorrhage or, a, you know, they have pathology like a cyst or a polyp, then you are going to need to make an interface with the medical profession. And the way that you manage that, actually, it must be managed quite carefully because, Actually, you don't have any right to that information as a singing teacher. And although your um, your student may well want to show you all the videos that they had in the voice clinic, you know, GDPR and all of that. So there are lots of um, boundaries, safety boundaries there that mm. need to be navigated. Um, and to say nothing of the challenges that both uh, Jale and myself talked about, 
dealing with um, employment and management and so forth when a singer hits a voice problem. Because there's still this massive culture of shame Mm -hmm. around us hitting a voice problem, which is completely different. You know, if an athlete has an injury, do people point the finger of shame? No, they don't. Mm. But they do in the singing profession. So we spoke a lot about scope of practice, limitations of practice. Um, singing teachers are not overstepping the mark. Can I just say one thing here? Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're a singing teacher and you have had 25 years of experience. I don't care how much you have sat in the voice studio. I don't care how good your ears are. And I don't care how good your eyes are either. You are not to diagnose. You do not diagnose. You do not diagnose medical things. It is not your field. Mm, And we also, I mean, that's a whole ethical dilemma there. And to be fair, I have had more than one singer come to me and say, what do you think is wrong? Sure. Yeah. And And the answer is, I can't diagnose. And that's because of the trust that there is between the singer and the singing teacher. And that leads me to say that it's true. There are sometimes things that we spot because of the way that we work with an individual Mm -hmm. uh, long term and for a longer period of time than most um, speech and language therapy sessions. There are things that we will spot that perhaps the therapist may not spot. And I have actually had that situation and uh, presented about it, didn't she? And I Mm. got acknowledged. It was nice. My name was actually on slide. I think the really interesting thing about that is, is because the singing teacher will probably, well, not probably, but certainly spend more time with the singer than anybody else on the team. And so we'll be very familiar with that person's voice. And therefore, we may be able to spot patterns or trends that weren't there before. This, that my statement still stands. You cannot diagnose. You are not qualified to diagnose. What you do is you then refer back to the medical team to say, look, I think there's something going on here and it's this. And the medical team will then investigate as to whether that's appropriate or not. And a good team, you know, a good um, SLP, SLT and um, a good laryngologist, they want that information. Mm-hmm. So it's just the way you deal with it. Um, I think another thing I learned from this, you know, like most patients, we want a diagnosis. Yes. It makes us feel safe. And one of the things that we learned from this panel and also other presentations is if perhaps your your medical laryngologist doesn't quite know what it is that's happened, it doesn't mean they're crap. No. It means that sometimes the pattern isn't yet clear and more than one medic talked about. Mm. Sometimes you don't know exactly what's going on until you get in there. And that's in surgery. Yeah. And that actually happened with, you know, in our last two podcasts, we talked about uh, Kate Bassett going through surgery. Mm -hmm. There was one aspect of um, what she went through in her surgery that the surgeon had not been able to see until she was actually under anaesthetic and you could get right in there. Well, there was more than one example on the conference where somebody Mm. 
presented with a particular set of symptoms and we mm. saw the en- the endoscopy video yeah and the stroboscopy and the stroboscopy mm-hmm. video and they're going well you know this looks like this but once we got her into the surgery what happened was that this was there but it was actually there was something else underneath it so this thing that that they were going into surgery for was covering up something else and it was impossible even for the surgeons to find out until they actually got in there and started working on the vocal folds themselves. Mm, mm. Really fascinating. Um, and I also took away from this session that maybe sometimes if you're working with, you know, high level laryngologist, you, you have to go just leave it in their hands mm. because they do know what they're doing. That's what they did all their training for. Mm. And it's not about like, oh, I'm the one who knows I'm in a powerful situation and you're not. It's more about judgment. You know, how much does the singer need to know about the nitty gritty? Because if the person concerned is convinced that they can do something about it, maybe in that moment in time, the most important thing is to reassure the singer and say, yes, we've seen this sort of thing. Oh, there's another moment. Mm. Bernard Richter said every month they have a vocal fold hemorrhage. That's no, how- That's not one person. That's people who arrive in the studio. There's one person in the world in, in who the just clinic. has a hemorrhage no, every they, month. They have. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a female thing. Um they see someone with a vocal fold hemorrhage every, every month, month and from different performing backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you do have to leave it in their hands. That said, there is nothing wrong, you know, if you do need surgery in getting a second opinion. I mm-hmm. would always recommend that if mm-hmm. you need surgery. Yeah. Well, I mean, really what we're talking about is communication between the team. Oh, and I just want to say something else as well. Um, I don't think it applied to anybody who was on my panel, but um, Kitty Verdolini-Abbott did point out, because she was um, presenting as well and contributing to the panel uh, from the American perspective, just because someone has the words SLP or SLT after their name doesn't mean they know anything about voice. I know, how bizarre is that? I know, they may have completely different specialisms, you know, such as swallowing, Um, or, and even if they do know a bit about voice, that it doesn't mean that they know about singing. And that's really where our role comes in. And I personally think the the more we can strengthen these interfaces, uh, the better, which is one of the reasons why you and I go to conferences like this. Yes. Okay. That was a long report. Yeah. Um, I just want to say one of the things that interested me from the surgeon's perspective is... I think this perspective has changed over over the decades. The thing that I came away with from most people who were talking was respect the lamina propria. Mm-hmm. It's like the basic thing now is that if you can keep the lamina propria of your vocal folds intact, mm. then you can pretty much do most things underneath it. All will be well. And, and mm. all will still be well. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that's a, that's a new thing. Because that's the level that makes contact isn't it and actually what Mm. what was said was if you respect the lamina propria the function and the healing will be okay Mm. which is very interesting i also knew oh and by the way anesthesia is one of the most important things if you get the anesthesia right again that things will go very very smoothly if you are a singer and you're going into surgery let the surgeon know because it's very important that they get the anesthetic right for you 
And are you talking about laryngeal surgery here, or are you talking about any surgery? Um, any surgery, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, laryngeal surgery will have its own things, but mm. any surgery, and that's um, if you have to have intubation, mm-hmm. which is to have the anaesthetic tube put down your throat, you need to let the surgeon and the anaesthetist know beforehand. Because for many operations, there's the option of using the laryngeal mask. Yes. Which is what I, um, when I had my heart procedure. Yes. So no tubes being uh, thrust through the vocal folds. <laughs> Thank you. I also learned, um, I didn't know, I, mean, I love jargon. I love that every every career has its own jargon. And I do really well, mostly on the medical jargon. Um, there was, I didn't know that you could marsupialize a retention cyst. That was a brand new word on me and I loved it. I wrote it down. So, and also there was something, they kept talking about RP. Are you going to tell them what marsupializing is? No. Okay. <laughs> Look it up. Um, it's basically, it's making a pocket. Uh, but they, and they kept talking about RP and people who had RP. And I was thinking, well, that's received pronunciation in my language. What has that got to do with mm-hmm. it? And it's actually not RP at all. It, I think it's A-R-R-P. Which um, And it's to do with papilloma, which are little growths that happen. And so it's actually quite a serious thing. Mm. But every time they mentioned RP, and I'm thinking, why are people talking about RP? So it's really interesting that, that jargon has different meanings when you're talking to different careers. So, expanding your horizons, professional development... It's actually why we do, we still do professional development. Yes, but it's also why we do what we do. Well, we offer professional development as well. This is the thing about, Mm. the thing that we really got from the conference is the amount of sharing and the amount of advice and the amount of experience that was in the room. Because experience cannot be gained unless you experience it's one of those really weird things. Mm-hmm. You can't learn experience from a book. No. You can't learn experience from another teacher. You can't learn experience by thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You can only learn experience by doing it. Mm. And I think what's so fascinating is once you've done it, you have an insight into what you've done that you can then share. And then people have an approach to when they experience it. So what's on our CPD table at the moment? We have quite a smorgasbord of things, don't we? We do. And it mm. sort of depends what people need. And we ha- actually have a very wide range of things. The thing I'm going to start with is the deep dive. Mm. Uh, this is the Learning Lounge deep dive. And, and this has well over 600 videos in it going back 20 years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, it covers so much. So we have spreadsheets we have a terrible thing to start with because it's so unsexy (laughs) spreadsheets of repertoire but basically Mm. it's repertoire lists Mm. that you Mm. can download and uh, videos of courses we have videos of explanations we have you know videos of us doing stuff videos of masterclasses there's also study notes there's reflection study notes after many of the training offerings that are, are there in the deep dive and the point of the deep dive is really that you can dive in for a month Mm. And then stop, mm. or you can carry on. And trust me, there is a lot more than a month's worth. Well, of you stuff. could have a month and binge, and we have seen people do that. We have. 
Um, or you could take your time and do, you know, a little bit of embedding and processing for yourself, trying stuff out. I mean, we recommend that that basically you spend six months in the deep dive because you will learn so much from it. Uh, yeah, and we have got more things in the pipeline. Um, we're, so, about, we're about to add another course yes, to the deep dive. We're not going to tell you We're not going to tell you what it is. is. Yes. Um, we also have, some people will already know about the 12 Hours to Better Singing teaching, Yeah. but we've recently released 12 more hours to better singing teaching yes and there's a whole unit there on uh, dealing with voice problems in singing where I talk about uh, two clients of mine one who had a um, muscle tension dysphonia and uh, several actually and the other who needed to have surgery and how I helped unpick what was going on with the muscle tension dysphonia Mm. um, and how I helped both singers back to full vocal health Mm. And this is the thing that many of us singing teachers need to know. And I I think you'll find it a a really super unit on the course. What is so interesting now about the 12 hours, 12 hours and 12 more hours to better singing teaching is that that is the first part of our teacher accreditation program. It's the first two steps, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you can do step one, which is the 12 hours and stop. Or you can go on to the 12 more hours and stop. Once you've done that, you go on to the accreditation gateway. Mm. And then once you've done that, you are on the accreditation programme. And um, the, we just want to talk briefly about the accreditation programme. We're, we're halfway through the second run now of the new version. Um, we're about to start the third one later this year. Yes. What we provide in that is basically it's a very strong community. It is really what we saw in the conference, but on a much longer term scale, so that people are finding out not they're not just improving their singing, teaching and building their studios, but they're actually changing their lives. And it's a very powerful thing to say. Mm-hmm. But we have so many of the participants from Cohort 21 who are now doing things that they would never have dreamed of doing yeah, before they you, started the course. If people look out on Facebook and on Instagram and also on YouTube, yeah. um, first of all, you can see a series of interviews that we did with uh, what we call Cohort 21 to 22 mm-hmm. um, during their training. And, you know, if you want to get a flavour of what it was like for them, go and, you know, have a look at some of those. But also... Um, what we're doing now is we're sort of featuring our registered teachers, mm-hmm. and a few of them have been featured on Instagram. And it's amazing to see what they're doing now. Of course, you know they're doing their own social media, they're getting out there, they're building their own stables. And and it's just been, I mean, honestly, it's a joy to see where they are Um almost one year on. And and one of the things that we do, quite apart from sharing information and taking them through processes and techniques and, and, you know, watching them build their own teaching stuff, uh, there are two things that we do. One is career mentoring Mm. and one is working out what their main values are. Those two are very, very closely linked. If you know what your values are, then it's much easier to build those into what you do and it makes your life so much easier, so much more productive, and it feels like you're on track. Mm. And I think this is across the board with people that we're working with now. They're going, I feel like I'm on track. Mm -hmm. I feel like I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And quite often they'll stay in singing teaching, but they will change their focus of what they're doing, or they'll change the clientele of the studio, or they'll raise their game in Mm. some way. Mm. And we've just 
I think it was yesterday, had uh, one of the Cohort 21 post on uh, putting her fees up. So registered teacher. Okay, all the Cohort 21 people are now registered teachers. Um, Go and check them out on the website, our lovely website, and you can read about each of them. There's 19 of them all together. Yeah. um, Yes, she shared a whole process of how she put her feet up. And I'm so pleased because that was one of our mentoring sessions. That was Mm. one of her mentoring sessions with me Mm. on how you build a studio and how you build your career in different areas and she has a lot of strings that she has she's expert in and Mm. and qualified in so it was pulling all of those strings together and going drop that do this focus on that push this it was really fascinating Mm. so the process is 12 hours 12 more hours the gateway course and the accreditation program Mm. and i want to say we have had quite a few people who have emailed us and said, well, I'm a very experienced teacher. I don't need to do the 12 hours. Can I just come straight in on the accreditation gateway? Yes, you do. And the answer is no, you can't. Mm. End of. Full stop. No. Yes, you do need to do them. No, you you can't. You can't leave out a stage. No shortcuts. Yeah. And there's a very good reason for it. We have had people on the 12 hours course who have been teaching for 40 years and who are headliners in their own country. Mm. And they come on the course and they go, wow. They still get stuff out of it. Yeah. So um, it builds. The whole thing builds. And in fact, if you did come in uh, in the the Gateway course, you would be lost with the way that we work. It's very carefully built up from the Mm. very beginning. Mm. Uh, You don't have to be a beginner teacher to do the 12 hours. In fact, we prefer if you're not. Mm. We prefer if you are an experienced teacher. Yeah. Um, Minimum of three years. Minimum three years. Otherwise, you won't get it. Much better if you've had 10, Mm. because you'll appreciate what it is that we're doing and where we're aiming you. And I think what's very interesting about the teachers who have been approaching us for the accreditation very typically, they have already been working for 10 years mm-hmm. and they are now hungry for more. Mm-hmm. They know they need to learn more. I think this is the thing. When, mm. you, when you're teaching, and it can be a very closed system when you're teaching because you are constantly giving out to your students mm. and you're constantly giving out. If you work in a school, you're constantly giving out to the school. One of the things that the accreditation really does well is it says now is your turn to mm-hmm. receive. Now mm. is your turn to grow. Now is your turn to embed. And the thing that I feel very strongly about is we do not say to you, oh, you know nothing, you've got to start again. Absolutely not. You are already an experienced teacher. You already know what you're doing. You may not know everything that you're doing, or you may do stuff and you don't know why it works, but that's what you're there on the accreditation for. Mm. I think we've said enough about the accreditation for now. I think we have too. Yeah, there'll be more about this in the future. Uh, Look out on Instagram and on Facebook because I'm going to be talking about um, the accreditation program and um, what its value has been for the people who've taken it so far. But I think we have unpacked enough about our very happy experience of being stretched. Yes, we will put all sorts of links up in the show notes for you. I wrote an article on one of um, Kitty Vedderly Abbott's papers, yes, you which did. is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the article and the video that I then did about it. Yeah, on YouTube. lovely. Okay. Uh, so that's that. We'll give you all the links that we've been talking about. And um, we will see you next time. Thank you very much for mm-hmm. listening. Bye. Bye-bye.
This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher.